This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach, and I write about creating rewarding careers. My most recent book is Find Your Happy at Work. It's a guide to career satisfaction and success. Our guest today knows a lot about creating a happy and meaningful work life. Alex Atwood is the founder and CEO of Gravy Work, which is a platform that helps people find part-time flexible jobs in sectors like travel, hospitality, and retail. He'll talk about how side gigs and balancing multiple jobs might be a good path for you. But the gig economy is only one of Alex's interests. He's a serial entrepreneur who has created four startups. He's also a podcaster and a coach who cares a lot about transformational leadership and about ways to optimize human potential. One of Alex's coaching tools is microdosing, and he'll talk a bit about how psychedelics may help cultivate presence, self-awareness, and well-being. Alex, thanks so much for being with us here today. I'm really interested in your uh, quite varied career. Well, it's an honor to be here, and I'm excited about sharing all that I can. Well, we want to have you share a bit about the gig economy, and I want to hear about gravy work, which sounds like a, a really interesting platform. But I'm always fascinated by people who have wandering and um, interesting career paths, and you are certainly one of those people. I I always read up everything I can ab- ab- about people, and somewhere I read that your entrepreneurial career started very early, maybe in grade school even. So would you kind of give us an overview of your career path and when you got started and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, well, I'd love to. I, I would say that it was taking in a lot of information at a very young age is is sort of where the, uh, the seed was planted. So before grade school, um, I grew up in a first-generation Iranian-American household uh, at a single-parent mother, the only child. And I remember at the time, I was must have been five years old, I remember she would talk to me about a lot that was going on in her life. And, um, and my father had just left, and um, she would tell me about um, how she was taking different jobs, and she was learning all of these different things at different jobs doing temp work. And, um, I'll never forget it. She was, uh, she was at a table one day and she was kind of talking to me about, um, the fonts in a newspaper. I I don't remember if it was the Washington Post or the USA Today, but she was literally, when we taught cutting and pasting, she was taking a pair of scissors and tape and cutting out fonts to create a logo for her newly formed staffing agency. And she would show me these and she would say, do you think this looks good? Do you think that looks good? And so from a very young age, I saw my mother in a situation where 
you know, at the time I thought, you know, I had everything. I had a bowl of cereal and I had a, you know, I had TV shows to watch and my mother was home, but she was, uh, you know, absolutely what they would call probably struggling financially at the time. But she had this fire in her that she was going to do something on her own. And, and she was asking her son to take a look at the fonts and, you know, create her logo. So that's where the seed started. So, you know, from five years old, I watched my, my mother start a staffing agency from being a, being a temp working as a Kelly girl. And, and so she learned uh, that business and I sort of grew up, uh, filing back in the day, they used to have filing cabinets where you would take A's, B's, C's and D's and make sure that each employee file was, 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 you know, alphabetically correct. So I did that and I learned from there. And then when grade school started, I, um, I had, I had sort of an entrepreneurial group of friends, maybe they'd call them hooligans or something, but they would, we would go after school and we would buy lots of different gums, like big league chew that was really popular in the mid eighties when I was in grade school. And we would buy it for like a dollar, you know, save some money, a couple dollars. And we'd go into school the next day and sell it like a hundred percent markup. I remember my friend Barry would then, we'd have, you know, five, six, seven dollars at the end of the school day, which was a lot of money for some fourth and fifth graders. So it was a combination of that sort of learning, you know, the idea of a, of a, of sort of a, you know, a trade, sort of a business. I think you might've called it a racket back then. Um, And then my mother's like true spirit for being an entrepreneur that sort of uh, launched me into um, the the staffing industry at first when I was, I sort of helped my mother throughout my young life. And then eventually, you know, led to me to, to start, you know, staffing agencies um, soon after college. And so I had a very unique place. I had a very unique perspective in terms of, um, you know, the, the need for shifts to be filled, the need for reliable people to take um, all sorts of jobs and that there was a gap between what was available in in the job marketplace and the visibility of some of these jobs to people that were seeking work. Um, And I think my mom figured that out pretty quickly because she was, you know, she had just learned the English language and, um, and through temp agencies, she found all sorts of places that she could go and earn a living to raise her, you know, to raise her young son. Um, and I think she saw that as being a real opportunity maker for her. And she wanted to make that opportunity for others. Um, and that's exactly what she did. So I'd have to give her a lot of credit. She sounds fabulous, very interesting and, um, brave and resilient. And so you had a model of inventing, uh, a career, not going and um, signing up for interviews and things like that. Did you ever think about, in say maybe in college, um, going after a traditional job, or did you always knew that you were going to create something? Well, you know, I did. You know, for a, a long period of time, I went to all sorts of different types of jobs at different companies with my mother's staffing agency, and I decided, you know, at some point in high school and college, I said, you know, I really can't work with my mother. There's, <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> where, you know, we're, we're together all day, you know, I'm together all night and then I'm, you know, and suddenly I'm working for her. So yes, I went out and I, I went out and I applied for all sorts of jobs. I worked in, I worked in an outback restaurant as a server. I worked in early morning at the time there was, um, uh, there was the Y2K, uh, scare. And so there was all sorts of shifts available, um, 
in and around the DC area where I grew up. So I, I would work uh, what they call a NOC, a network operations center at 4 a.m. To, to 9 a.m. And I'd work that shift and learn how to um, support this potential catastrophe. So that was interesting. I worked for the government for a period of time, worked in restaurants. So I, I got a really great idea of all the different types of, frankly, shift work that was out there. And, and what I mean by that is there was a need for people to work, you know, at specific times of the day doing specific jobs. And the most important quality of it was the ability to be reliable, you know, keep your word, you know, show up when you're supposed to show up and, um, and learn and give service to whoever it was on the other end of that line, whether it was, you know, whether it was somebody I needed support around Y2K or whether I was at an Outback restaurant making sure that that couple's anniversary, um, you know, had the highest quality food and just a great level of service. Um, and that taught me quite a bit that I brought into my entrepreneurial career, which started not too long after that. It sounds as though you had kind of multiple learning uh, paths, but because you saw so many jobs, I'm sure you saw good leadership and terrible leadership. So was it as early as back and when you were doing all those different kinds of jobs, you started thinking about what is a leader really supposed to do and what can we do as leaders to help people grow? Was that a very early interest of yours? Absolutely. I came up in a time where things were changing pretty drastically. There was a, um, there was a very sort of dic dictatorial style of leadership when I was, um, when I found myself in the job market soon after college. Um, I found that a lot of the companies that I would work for um, didn't really seem to want to listen or, or have any sort of forum of transparency for people that were outside of whatever sort of a core small group of decision makers were. And that's, that seemed to be the norm. And, um, it was also very, if, you know, very profit driven. It was very capitalistic. And I understand, you know, business has to drive a profit. That's, you know, sort of the, I don't necessarily like the word capitalism, but that is part of that infrastructure. But I found that that was being, uh, that was above and beyond what most decision makers and companies that I work for cared about. Um, and that led to lots of turnover in these positions that I was applying for and jobs that I was holding. People just wouldn't stay in these jobs for very long. And that really did affect the quality of the place that you know you're working and and your projection your your trajectory with you know with that particular company in other words you didn't feel like you were part of the organization and when i first started my you know my first business um my first staffing agency i decided that if we were going to be not only successful in the industry but if we were going to build something that was sustainable and really meant something, it had to be centric to the workforce, the worker. It, we, had to, we had to really understand that the people out there doing the jobs are the heart and soul of the business. And I found that you know, early on when I would take these different shifts and these different types of warehouses and food processing plants and all this other thing, that the morale and the, 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 the immediate supervisor, whoever was there, a lot of the times just weren't trained in 
um, in leadership. And, and by that, I mean, just really understanding who the people they were working with were and what was important to them and being able to have a global listening of the workplace. A lot of times it was just very narrow and that led to unhealthy work environments. Um, so that was, that was sort of an ethos that I had originally put forth that, you know, look, what's, what's really profitable, what's really sustainable and what's healthy is a work environment that's open and transparent. And you give some sort of forum for people to be able to provide their thoughts in a healthy way. And, um, and so, yeah, that really led to, um, where I, I think I eventually took my career, which was training, uh, first providing all sorts of different ways for people to level up skills to earn more, um, and understanding the workforce, understanding who are the people that, um, like truly who are they and, and what's important to them, um, so that you can craft a, um, a space that, that works for everyone. It, it feels like first, I love your approach. I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. Um, but I, a lot of people kind of agree in theory, but don't know how to implement. They don't know how to to be the leader that kind of leader that you're suggesting is needed. But you had a real test. It sounds like uh, during COVID, during the pandemic, you had a, I think it was a hospitality staffing company, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, hospitality ended and this was the big test. Could you pivot and create something and take care of your workers? And tell me about what happened then, because it sounds like you were particularly successful in making that shift. Yes. Well, um, what had happened was I'd actually just launched a company, Gravy Work, which is the company that I'm you know currently leading in, in 2019. Actually, the end of 2018 is when we launched in the App Store. And um, so 2019 was us sort of figuring things out, making sure there was something called a product market fit, which basically meant that people were willing to use our uh, platform, our mobile first platform to bring people into their shifts. And um, so that was very exciting. And that was what 2019 looked like. And the idea was that we were going to validate this and, and really show that we give more opportunity to the workforce and more opportunity for the the employers at large to be able to fill these shifts. And suddenly in March of 2020, the entire uh, industry shuts down um, and there's a pandemic. And the thing about it was the, the collaborative sort of transparent environment that had to be put in place in order to build something that we were building 2018, 2019 in a, in a market that we didn't know existed, um, gave the, the, the initial people, I think we had 16 people total in the company, a real purpose around not just what we were doing, but what they were learning and what, and what their abilities were. It sort of, it sort of allowed them to have a much, um, broader sphere of, of, of not just, um, influence, but, but of their own sort of abilities. And so, um, we had a really great energy at the time. And I remember when we saw the pandemic coming, um, we really, you know, we were in a position where I think over like seven days, the entire industry went from, it went from in, you know, from 60 to zero. It went from a hundred in February to 60 to zero by March 14th or March 13th. And so I, you know, we had a team meeting and we said, look, you know, right now we, we have to do a, 
we have to do a layoff because we just don't have a market to serve. Um, but I'm going to make sure that we do something immediately to bring as many of you guys back as we possibly can. And at that time, the team started to come up with ideas, um, literally in that meeting. But moving forward, we we started to have, as a lot of people did, we had different sort of Zoom meetings as a group and sort of shared ideas and you know, what can we do. And so we ended up um, through uh, some sort of divine um, alignment of the universe, um, finding um, one of the only sources for a, for a um, for uh, something called HOCL, which was a non-toxic viricide that was able to not only um, uh, kill the COVID virus, with that, which at the time it was it was like you you wanted to make sure your surfaces and anything you touched was was yeah, sanitized. We didn't know. Exactly. We had no so idea. You had to be really, <laughs> yeah. really careful. You had to be really careful. And the thing was, a lot of what they were using was highly toxic. So at the time, people were spraying into these elevators and into these public spaces, whether they be hospitals or whether they be, you know, hotels that were that were that were somehow operating. Um, we we found something that was non-toxic. It was, it was, it was incredible. So we were able to pivot and start to supply our hotel clients, our, our, our university clients, people that, you know, there were still people attending campus. There were still people that needed to be there. So we were able to do that. And we, we, we launched a company with the, the same group called Sani staff. And slowly we hired back, you know, one, two, three, four, until we got up to almost 75% of the team members, not just the people in the office, but the people that were out there doing the work, we were able to get them trained up. I had implemented training programs my entire career, so I was able to teach people how to use the electrostatic sprayers, which is a, which was a huge thing back then, and teaching um, you know uh, different types of ways to use ATP testing to understand where, when, how to properly mitigate um, a potential uh, COVID outbreak, and so that's what we did, and um, and it ended up bringing people back to work, and it ended up um, really teaching our workforce at the time, um, exactly what it was to have a clean and, and, and sanitary workspace. And, um, and it was really just the, the ideas and the energy that the team put together and just me making sure that I provided some sort of vehicle for that energy to manifest itself into a new company. And so that allowed us to eventually, as things started to come back, it kept the sort of oil in the machine running. It allowed people to continue to work with each other, have a reason to go out there and service clients, have a reason to be there and help our industry, being the hospitality industry, come back from which was what was almost what seemed to be at the time a death blow. And so we were able to be a part of that. And, um, and that was, you know, again, that was really what the team did. Um, and I think it was what we had initially started when we when when we seeded the company that allowed for that to show up. So now the company um, is back on its original path or some variation of that as you've learned. Yeah. Tell us about uh, Gravy Works and and I really am interested in kind of your take on where we are with the gig economy and how does your platform help people participate? Well, so the gig economy now um, is is really some uh, buzzwords that have been that have shown up maybe in the last in the vernacular for the past five or six years, but 
you know, I, I started in the temp staffing industry a long, long time ago and found that um, the gig economy in some form or fashion has always been there. Um, mm -hmm. And the people that take those jobs have remained sort of the same. And, and what I mean is, is that initially, um, you know, specifically when I started my first staffing company, which really focused on the, 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 the events industry of, of hospitality for the hotel and food and beverage industry, I found that there was a group of people that had, well, really two groups of people. Some people had full-time jobs and they, for example, needed to pay for, you know, their child's, you know, college tuition. They needed extra money for, you know, presents around the holidays. They wanted to buy an extra car. So they would, on top of a full-time job, they would work all sorts of, you know, weekend temp jobs, those type of things. So that there was that type of person out there that just wanted to make the extra money and monetize their time as much as possible. Um, and the second type of, of, of person was really people that were um, mainly coming into the country, similar to what my family had done from Iran and initially with the revolution and just kind of seeking um, a way to be able to sustain themselves for a period of time. And lots of, of the time they would work for, you know, six, seven, eight months. Um, and they would either take jobs in the you know catering and hotel industry. A lot of them, if they were skilled trades or unskilled trades, they would you know, take jobs, you know, building infrastructure, construction, they would do that for anywhere from three to six to nine to sometimes a year or two, and then usually send a good amount of that money back to their families where they were from, and then eventually go back and spend time with their families, three, four, five, six months. So there was a good group of people that, that would, would do that. And it was, it was in, at the end of the day, it was the gig economy because they would always look for the short term types of, uh, opportunities to, to find money and to be able to monetize themselves. And then finally, there was people just looking for opportunity, just looking for a, a foot in the door. Um, and that was, that was always something that I really enjoyed more than anything, because you'd find people that didn't realize that there was so many opportunities out there that didn't require necessarily a college degree, but required a work ethic or were able to provide training um, and able to provide sustainability. So those type of jobs, I always enjoyed filling and finding people that were so grateful to be in these roles and finding employers that were so grateful to have people that had that sort of work ethic. Um, I hope I answered your question. I think I might've gone. Yeah. I, I, what I'm thinking <laughs> is that, that the, what you're describing is, um, a workforce that's been with us for, a long time, and and yes. you're helping to facilitate to make it easier to make connections, but at the same time, what I'm seeing, and you know, one of the things I do is I'm an executive coach, and I work with people uh, who are making transitions and things like that. I, I think newer is the idea that oh, I can have a side gig because I'm totally bored by my job, and I want to try something else. It'll maybe I want to uh, be a vet tech in the next life, and I'm going to you know get this starting job cleaning a vet's office so I can get a sense of it. There, there, It seems much more common now for people to have a side gig, partly for the money, partly for the change of pace, or partly because they've lost a job. Maybe they're called back to the office and they don't want to go back to the office. And so uh, because it's a 60-mile commute and they're looking to see what they can do in their community. So it, it, it feels like there are a whole lot of people trying something new. Is that just 
because of who I've been talking to, or does that what it feel like to you too? Oh yeah. Well, it you know if you opened up sort of the idea of the gig economy to all of the opportunities that are available online through apps and all sorts of different um, uh, you know products and marketplaces that are out there, that's absolutely a big part of it. I've um, I've I've had a conversation uh, just just a couple of days ago actually with with an Uber driver. And, um, he was, uh, you know, sort of a part-time pastry chef. He'd, he'd never done it professionally, but he had found a platform where he could, uh, post recipes and, and videos of himself making these sort of really cool pastries from his home country. And he found himself now online in this marketplace type of environment with a little menu of pastries from, from where he was from. And I thought, wow, you know, he, he said at this point he's, he's doing that and he's, you know, driving Uber and, um, he was interested in potentially picking up some, uh, culinary type shifts with gravy work. My company it was a great conversation, but it il illustrates exactly that, that, you know, now with the way that, um, the, uh, the marketplace sort of uh, revolution has happened where, people can go out and, and sell their skills and their wares. Um, whether, the, whether it's, you know, somebody who is potentially wanting to craft furniture, um, and wants to put a little marketplace together on maybe a website and sell their furniture online. But, you know, there could be, you know, there were times when that was not even an option. You just had, yeah. you did what you did for work and your hobby remained a hobby and you just enjoyed doing it. And I think people have suddenly woken up to find out that, Hey, you know, maybe these hobbies, these things we're very passionate about that we really just love doing. We can now make sustainable and actually turn into a side gig. And well, you have a side gig. Yeah. If I'm correct, I do. <laughs> you're a, you're a coach and you're interested in helping people, um, become fully developed maybe to um, become more aware of their own well-being and and to become better leaders and all kinds of things it looks like just from what you've written about but one thing I want to touch upon uh, before we uh, we finish up just because um, it's unusual I you describe yourself on your website uh, as a as a coach who's interested in micro doses and and using psychedelics as a way to enhance awareness and things like that, what's the state of that tool these days? Is it how accessible is it? How common is it? How did you get into it? Yeah, well, I guess I'll start quickly with how I got in into that, um, and I'd say it didn't start with any sort of. Um, any sort of psychedelic medicine or entheogen at all, it started with something called the Landmark Forum, which was a three-day um, weekend um, that was a conversation that happened in a room between a room and um, and a, what they call a leader, a landmark leader, and a group of people that were able to share extremely um, vulnerably in that space and. Um, it started to open my eyes to all of the meaning that I was making out of things that were happening in my life and all the judgments I was making about myself and others. And so that 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 sort of led to um, a flip in the way that I saw how I related to myself and others and what was really important. Um, and that led me to find other ways of being able to sort of channel um, that newfound energy and 
newfound um, way of speaking to others and really being present with myself and others. And in a very natural way, I, I just started to say yes to things that I would have generally said no to because I didn't feel that, you know, there was sort of a, a, a thing that I would think that, hey, you know, that's not for me. Those are, mm-hmm. you know, those are like people that are kind of hanging out on their couch and not doing much. And suddenly <laughs> I, <laughs> everything sort of flipped and I said, you know, maybe all the things that I'd heard were not necessarily true. So I started to say yes to things. Um And uh, that led me to um, an ayahuasca journey with a group of uh, type A's (laughs) in the- Oh, that uh, must have been interesting. (laughs) It was very interesting. And I I met, you know, there were people that showed up there with, you know, just really big egos and, you know, thinking that, hey, this is a a networking event, a way for me to further my career and my status in the world. And and it turned into um, a a real place of, of people- really connecting with themselves and each other and and sharing some things, some traumas and just realized how connected we all were. And um, so I found it to be a, a, a personal tool that I began to learn more and more about. I didn't want to have any, um, I didn't want to, you know, uh, take part in any kind of substance that I wasn't very, very familiar with and understanding the source of, of, of where these substances come from and how they're used. So i I, I became certified um, through an organization called Third Wave in psychedelic coaching and integration, which includes um, uh, helping those and supporting people that are interested in doing things like like microdosing, which is um, frankly a it's 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 a method that people can use to be able to enhance well being. It's sub perceptual, so it's not something that you actually necessarily feel as much as you might feel a cup of coffee, but in the background it absolutely does provide um, sort of a richness and it provides a sense of uh, being present and a groundedness throughout the day. And it's from, it's from, you know, some of the most natural mycelium networks, you know, that basically communicate uh, throughout the world. Um, And so it's, it's, it's really a, it's a profound thing. And, um, but you know, it's not in my coaching, I've, I started, in the staffing industry, I started as a coach to teach those that were interested in getting into the industry, um, and that eventually evolved into under, wanting to, you know, work with people and um, understand, you know, what really matters to people. Um, so since then, I've I've become an ICF certified coach. I work with George Mason in their workplace coaching program. Um, they have a they have a department called the um, organization uh, the the of well being, and they've had twelve cohorts. So I was a part of that. And um, just find myself being drawn more and more to supporting, you know, people and being heard and, um, and just sort of overall health uh, yeah. and well-being for the individual and for organizations. Well, I, I feel like um, I, I understand that part of your path. I have done a lot of things, including being a lawyer and an executive. But as time goes by, it's more about the people and how they can grow and how they can promote their well-being and how we can bring them together. I think the the longer you're in the uh, workplace, sometimes the more important those things continue to be. And it sounds like that's what it's been like for you. It has. And there's, and there's one thing that I've, I've sort of uh, talked about uh, recently, which I, which I call work-life integration. Um, and there was always the, the saying work-life balance, which, which sort of 
uh, I feel is a misnomer because, you know, whether you're at work or whether you're in life, you're in life. And it really is integrating your, your work and your life in such a way that allows all of it to be enjoyable. Um, I think that's yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. Well, it has been great talking with you. I'm so interested in what you're doing. Before we go, I'll have in the notes for the pod, this episode of the podcast uh, a site to gravy work. But is there anything else people should know about what your platform does in case somebody's interested and in, in maybe coming to you for finding some gigs? Yeah, well, right now, Gravy Work is available in a, in a few limited cities. So we're available in the Washington, D.C. area. We're available in Central Florida, Orlando, Tampa. Um, we're soon to open in Atlanta, Georgia, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So slowly but surely, there will be opportunities to work on our platform. And then personally, um, I host a podcast called The Alchemist Lounge, where we have conversations um, with different types of people from all sorts of different walks of life, leaders, sports figures, um, psychedelic therapists, and everything in between. Um, and we really just understand what their journey is and what their path is. Um, so I do that too. And if you're interested in, in learning anything in terms of psychedelics or um, really just transformation in general or just health and well-being in businesses, you can always, uh, you can always Google me at Alex Atwood or alexatwood.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Alex. I love talking with you and I'll uh, uh, be interested to see what you might do next. Thank you, Beverly. This is a pleasure. Today, we've been talking with entrepreneur Alex Atwood about the gig economy and ways to optimize human potential. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that if you're feeling stuck, a side gig might be a good way to try out a new type of job earn a little extra cash, and generate new energy in your work life. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating.